There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with a king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet that's right up to $1,500 again sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in Ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park that's 1-800-GAMBLER Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it, Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. The United States of America is under attack by armed right-wing terrorists. The Texas mall shooter and every other one of them bent on killing the enemies living inside their own minds might as well be suicide bombers, might as well be ISIS. The receipts on the Texas mall shooter are a mile long. He was a right-wing media addict. He dedicated a hate-filled online rant to the appallingly dangerous libs of TikTok Twitter account. He posted screenshots from the right-wing troll Tim Pool. A swastika tattoo covered those parts of his body not covered by an SS tattoo. He signed one comment with the name Adolf Hitler. He repeatedly posed in Nazi uniforms. He used a meme that suggested there were only two routes for Latino children identify as black or become a white supremacist. And his pedigree as a right-wing, MAGA-inspired, neo-Nazi, perpetrator of stochastic terrorism, fueled by every component of Donald Trump and his coalition of hate, could not possibly be more easily discovered, more rapidly verified, more thoroughly self-convicting. And the right-wing is claiming it is all fake. And psyops and false flags. And he can't be a white supremacist. He must be with the Mexican drug cartels because his name is Mauricio Garcia. And you can't be Latino or have anything except pasty white skin to be a Nazi or a white supremacist. And not one of them has made the tiny intellectual leap 
from Proud Boy leader Enrique Terrio's conviction last week or the neo-Nazi white supremacist Nick Fuentes. And I do not know what we do about the people in a society who deny every fact that does not serve them. Trump was not the first American to act this way. He was merely the one who popped the top of the genie's bottle. Denial and confirmation bias and rationalizations of the most amazing complexity and effectiveness are older than the nation itself. But now we have what? 20% of the country? 30% of the country? Counting those who can turn the rejection of reality on and off depending on the risk to their fantasy existence? 40% of the country? Who have reached that Orwellian point of believing it when the party tells them two and two make five, to the degree that when you reference that magical math and you reference Orwell, they will look at you blankly and claim that what you are doing is Orwellian. I do not know what to do with them. I do not know how to deprogram them or even deprogram enough of them or even some of them. I do not know how to begin to suggest how to do that when the infrastructure that encourages, supports, and backstops their utter delusions has been built slowly but consistently for 40 years. When that infrastructure is not just unfettered, but growing even more, and the national government that could have use these last two years in power to push back in a thousand small ways. Just assumed everything would go back to normal and has all but ignored the reality that there are manifold mental health crises in this country, but the foremost of them is that some huge percentage of the citizenry is no longer connected in any way to the reality around them. The Saturday massacre in Allen, Texas, was a right-wing terrorist attack, and those who helped foster it in this creature Garcia and those who benefited from it divide into two groups and two groups only. The ones who genuinely believe he couldn't have been right-wing, he couldn't have been a white supremacist, he must have been sent by the government agency of your paranoid choice, he was with the cartels. He would not have been stopped if we had some control over assault weapons. It wasn't terrorism. It's not their problem. That's one group. And the other group is those who don't really believe any of that, but they say they do just to influence the others. There was a guy, this fringe ex-actor, I believe his name is Sorbo, who asserted yesterday that there are no assault weapons that they do not exist. We have had people like this in this country for two and a half centuries. We have had people like this in this world since we gained the power of speech. Usually they come in smaller units, like Jim Jones and the People's Temple or the various political terrorist groups that demonized specific minority groups throughout our history. But once before, the nation was faced 
with this situation where a third or more of its citizens believed in things that were not true and did not exist. And that happened before and during the Civil War. And despite decades of pleading about morals and about monetary realities of agriculture and about the indefensibility of owning another human being, and then years of warnings about what the disparity of the economies of the North and the South meant, what they meant was the inevitable outcome of a shooting war. They began a shooting war anyway on the premise that the equations of manpower and production and money were not true, could not be true, would never be true. And 600,000 Americans died as a result of that. The United States of America is under attack by right-wing terrorists. They are not yet fully organized nor coordinated. But they have countless, largely still ad hoc, private or nearly private communication methods. They have access to 200 million guns or 300 million guns or God knows how many million guns with a capacity to self-delude that could send shooter after shooter into places like Allen Premium Outlets convinced that they could kill as many as they wanted and escape alive and elude pursuit forever and become lionized by right-wing media. And they have a superstructure of influencers and pundits and what are essentially teachers who hone in them the ability to deny that anything they do could possibly be wrong. And every day we hesitate to act against them. Every day our leaders like Chuck Schumer reveal that their next big response will be a Senate Democratic caucus to discuss gun violence and the path forward on gun safety legislation when there is no such path anymore. When that is their next response, rather than a slew of executive orders pulling as many guns out of the hands of the right-wing terrorists as we have time left to pull, and pulling the communications networks out of the hands of the right-wing terrorists, and pulling the right-wing terrorists out of the country, every day we hesitate our ability to defend ourselves against the inevitable day when they actually organize their terror becomes weaker and weaker and weaker and ultimately will become non-existent. It sounds like madness to ask when we need to consider an executive order declaring a state of national emergency because of right-wing terrorism. But look at Allen, Texas, and the denial that followed it, and imagine the dozens and the hundreds and the thousands of Mauricio Garcias out there becoming literally connected to the Proud Boys or just slightly more evil version of CPAC or MAGA or another Trump front terrorist group and then ask yourself what other means exist for us to stop a pervasive nationwide violent suicidal reality denying cult that is looking ahead to November 5th, 2024, and seeing nothing but opportunity.
Still ahead on this edition of Countdown. So when Tucker Carlson promised to reveal where all the bodies are buried at Fox, promised to bring out the heavy hitters to bully Fox into letting him go to some other outlet somewhere, the first heavy hitter he meant was Brett Favre? Brett Favre retweeting Megyn Kelly? That's your opening blast? Brett Favre is a political TV conservative heavy hitter? Was he wearing pants at least? Yes, the president hosts Kevin McCarthy today to say some words about the debt ceiling. The president's words may include the validity of public debts clause of the 14th Amendment, followed by Kevin, surprise, buddy. And meanwhile, yes, a quarter of a million dollars in ads to pressure Biden to cave to McCarthy are appearing on cable news, including on, I can barely say it, they really did it. They really sold these guys time to pressure Biden. And it was my late friend Norman Lloyd who lived to be 106. And he said, yes, Keith, all those funerals I go to, they're depressing and they're wrenching. And on the other hand, he said, if I have to go to them, I'm still glad that I'm not the one who's required to stay after the funeral is over. The problem with being even in your 60s is the figures of your teens and your 20s are exiting with horrifying rapidity. The young upcoming news anchor I saw in a drama that played out when I was a 19-year-old TV intern has died. The story of John Rowland, Bill Jorgensen, the publication of the internship paper I had to write for college credit for that summer, and the famous phrase that preceded our newscast every night. It's 10 p.m. Do you know where your children are? That's next. This is Countdown. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. 
That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com news. That's LifeLock.com news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Uh, you know, this is Countdown with, uh, you know, Keith Olbermann. Okay, I'm messing around with the format today. Postscripts to the news next, and the passing of a broadcasting great who I worked with when I was 19 years old and wrote about. First time for the daily roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. The bronze to the fine folks at my alma mater, MSNBC, and no, you were not hallucinating. That commercial you saw on MSNBC, insisting that President Biden should cut the social safety net and gut every government agency because Kevin McCarthy told him to, that was not some sort of clerical error. It is a spot produced by a group aligned with the pitiful Speaker McCarthy called American Action Network. And that network spent a quarter of million dollars to put the ads on CNN and MSNBC. The CNN part is understandable. That's probably the first commercial they've sold this year. But the other part, yes, MSNBC also took the money from a conservative pack trying to pressure the Democratic president of the United States and put it on a supposedly liberal network because MSNBC is like CNN drowning. The runner-up, Brett Favre, the disgraced former NFL quarterback, has publicly come out to defend Tucker Carlson and Megyn Kelly. He has retweeted the screeching fascist Kelly's blasting of Fox for, you know, having the audacity to pay Carlson the $30 million it owes him. Favre added, quote, I'm with Tucker. Time to boycott Fox until they come to their senses and let the man speak. So let's see, that's uh, advertising, sportscasting, and football as industries that mystify Brett Favre. And we can now add contract law. Oh, and dick pics. We can add dick pics. Brett doesn't really understand dick pics. But the winner, the impossibly stupid Junior Trump. Speaking for all the fascists, pushing the line that Allen, Texas mall shooter Mauricio Garcia could not have been a white supremacist because his name was Mauricio Garcia. Ignoring folks like Nick Fuentes and Enrique Tarrio, ignoring the meme Garcia posted showing the only two roots he believed Latino youth have, identify as black or become a white supremacist, ignoring that the hate that Junior and his father and their cult members spread is colorblind, ignoring all that, Junior has written, quote, maybe the Mexican national with cartel tats identifies as a white supremacist and therefore we must totally go along with that narrative. Genius. Plus, remember Donald Trump Jr., you identify as a human being, 
Trump Jr. today's worst person in the world! Postscripts to the news, some headlines, some updates, some snarks, some predictions. Dateline, North Miami, Florida. John Rowland, news anchor at Channel 5 in New York from 1969 through 2004, died Sunday at the age of 81. I was an intern in his newsroom when I was 19 years old, and lately I had been thinking a lot about that newsroom and about him and about the extraordinary array of characters in that place when the sad news came about John Rowland. It's 10 p.m. Do you know where your children are? That's the place. The 10 o'clock news on Channel 5 in New York. It's 10 p.m. Do you know where your children are? Or as it was frequently mocked, it's 10 p.m. Do you know what time it is? The summer I was there, and I split time working on the news assignment desk and for the sportscaster, the legendary Bill Mazur. That summer was the time when the newscast on Channel 5 here in New York evolved or went backwards from a gritty, bared-knuckled, sometimes way too violent, groundbreaking broadcast to something a little gentler, but still innovative and compelling, just not, you know, shocking every night. The original anchor of the news was Bill Jorgensen with his shock of white hair and his attitude that was like something out of the movie The Front Page. I'm going to tell you the news now and you're going to listen. And if you don't want to do it, what are you going to do about it? Watch one of those laughing clowns on Channel 11? Why, I ought to pound you. In 1967, Channel 5, which was then owned by the Metro Media Company and is now owned by Fox, did something unheard of. Not only did it put on an hour of news every night, it did so in prime time at 10 o'clock up against the network shows. It did not offer a rerun or its own local comedy or drama or something. It did a newscast. And Jorgensen was its centerpiece. He signed off each program by saying, thanking you for your time this time till next time. There was no fluff, there were no features, there was a sportscaster, there was a movie and play reviewer, there was a weatherman, there was an anchor, two or three sub-anchors, and there were a dozen reporters sitting at their actual desks in the actual grubby little newsroom on the second floor of 205 East 67th Street, just past 3rd Avenue in New York. And I walked in in June of 1978, just as they decided that one of the sub-anchors, John Rowland, the man who just died, should start to take over as the main guy from Bill Jorgensen. John Rowland was from Pittsburgh, but he had been in L.A. for years, and he was California cool. I saw him leave his office for the studio one night in a great three-piece suit, or more correctly, two-thirds of a three-piece suit, jacket, vest, and cut-off jeans. He must have registered my surprise. You're going to make it in this business, he said to me. Of course, he said that to everybody. But just remember... Never take a job where they make you stand up from behind the anchor desk. Anyway, just before I got there, Channel 5 phased out Jorgensen's main sub-anchor, a man named George Sharman. And they and Jorgensen agreed that it was a good time for Jorgensen to take a sabbatical for a couple of months. 
He and his wife got into a motor home and they drove west. And one morning, not long after my arrival at the internship part of the assignment desk at Channel 5, Bill Jorgensen phoned in collect from somewhere outside Kansas City, Missouri. And I took the call, and once again, his voice was so booming, so urgent, that there sounded like there was no reason for him to need a phone. If I just opened the window, I could have heard him from Kansas City. Bill Jorgensen did not tell me the details of the problem he had encountered, but he sounded, particularly for him, frantic. At his request, I transferred him into the news director's office, and minutes later, out came the news director, Mark Monsky. We understood he was the only New York TV news director licensed to carry a gun. And my new colleagues explained to me that that was because everybody in the newsroom had thought about killing him at least once. Mark Monsky shouted, hey, everybody, Jorgensen and his wife were having breakfast in some diner near Kansas City. While they were eating, somebody stole their RV. And the newsroom erupted in applause. When it died down, somebody muttered, I hope everybody here is an alibi. And only a couple of people laughed. They began to ease John Rowland into Jorgensen's job, and so that summer was the beginning of an uneasy transition that ended the next spring. I was told by my main contact there, a wonderful man named Stanley Pinsley, who said he was not being my friend. He was just investing in the time in the future when he expected I'd be able to hire him at a network that by the end of that transition, Bill Jorgensen was kind of, you know, destabilized by things the way anchormen sometimes can be. And as a sign of how well he thought he was taking his slow replacement by John Rowland, Bill Jorgensen thought it might be funny to show up in the newsroom carrying a giant box with dynamite written on the side and saying, if I'm going to go, I'm going to take all you bastards with me. But I never confirmed that story. And honestly, how are you going to do that? I do know that a couple of months later, Bill wound up over on Channel 11 and seemed fine. He anchored there for eight years, and they had a priceless ad campaign for him that began, It's 10 p.m. Do you know where Bill Jorgensen is? Anyway, there was a kid next to me on the assignment desk, another intern, who asked me what kind of course credit I was getting from Cornell for my summer at Channel 5, and this was a 9 to 5 thing, or 3 to 11, five days a week, suit and tie, get on the phone and call the victim's brother and ask him when the funeral is kind of job. It was work. And I said, I'm getting one hour of credit. And he laughed at me and he said, oh, bad luck. Penn State's giving me 13. I used to think internships were the greatest thing in the world for people who wanted to get into TV or radio, news or sports, even unpaid, even slave wages, and I used to recommend them. I have mixed emotions now after 45 years of slowly realizing that, you know, gee whiz, a lot of people who have that ambition actually can't afford to go three months, even at the age of 19, without a paycheck. I mean, I had to commute to the job from the suburbs, and all things considered, with dry cleaning and everything else for my suits... For my suits, I probably paid $1,000 over the summer in expenses. To be fair, between what I learned about TV and the business and who I met there and who I still know from there and the contacts they gave me, I was repaid a thousandfold. But that would not have meant much if it had meant that in the summer of 1978, I didn't have any, you know, food or housing. 
For my one credit at Cornell, I had to write a paper about my experience, 20 pages minimum if I recall correctly, and submit it to my professor and to my supervisor at Channel 5, and I still have it, although one page is missing. And the reason I still have it is, in large part, because one day my friend Stanley Pinsley called me at Cornell in the fall of my senior year after my internship and ended and said, what did you do? You committed career suicide and your career hasn't even started yet. I was utterly mystified by whatever he was talking about, and I told him so. He said my supervisor, the newsroom comptroller, Christine Tomlinson, had made 100 copies of my internship paper and distributed it to everybody at Channel 5 News. I had not anticipated this. I had written freely and openly including mentioning which on-air person was referred to by all the producers as Ted Baxter, and which one was apparently having an affair that his wife didn't know about, and which one was drinking so heavily that it would kill him not five years later. I called Christine Tomlinson up the next day, and she said, Well, yes, I should have warned you, but you know, last year New York Magazine did a huge long story about us, five or six pages. And your paper was better, and it was so much more interesting than that. Everybody loved it. Everybody except Ted Baxter. I found the New York Magazine piece about the Channel 5 10 o'clock news recently. It was written by, of all people, Jeff Greenfield. The same Jeff Greenfield of CNN and ABC and CBS, 24 years after he wrote this, his piece on Channel 5 news, in 1977, 24 years later, Jeff would have his own nightly show on CNN, and I wound up being his backup host. But back to the late John Rowland. I should mention that late in my internship, there was a night where the sportscaster Bill Mazur was going to be off, and the regular backup was out of town, and his backup was out of town, and a couple of people, including the sports producer Cliff Gelb, wanted to put me on at age 19 having never been on television before. And they tried to get grassroots support for this in the newsroom, and they went to John Rowland, and John Rowland looked at them, and then he looked at me, and he said, eh, sounds great. If they agree, let me know. I'll teach you how to use the teleprompter, Keith. Well, they didn't agree. But thank you, John. And I think this is an appropriate time to read you some of that internship paper that I referenced. I'm going to do it out of order because the fun stuff, the anecdotes of being in a New York City TV newsroom in 1978 were in the last few pages and the behind the scenes process stuff, which is interesting, but not quite as that interesting. That was all at the beginning. So this just in, even though I wrote it in like September 1978. Vignettes, Isolated Recollections of a Summer at WNEW-TV, New York. On the Friday edition of Sports Page, I was assigned a myriad of tasks, ranging from keeping the UPI wire updated to listening to a crackly radio in the back of the room for a ball game to watching both the title fight and the New York Apples tennis match on the TV. The newsroom was more interested in the fight, obviously enough. Why did you just switch the channel? Sports page producer Norman Ross queried. I'm supposed to get the Apple score, Norman. I want to watch the fight, Keith. But you told me to get the score, Norman. It's not easy doing all these things at once. I mean, I've got to get this score. I've got to watch the wire. I've got to watch the fight. I've got to listen to the radio all at once. I didn't do all this for my health, you know. Well, thank God for you, he said. Again, 
I'm working sports and standing at the back of the room paying off the Casey's Kitchen's delivery boy. Food in hand, I start munching on an overpriced cheeseburger, and I see the small presence of the assignment editor, Steve Anderson, marching towards me. Out, he thrusts a sheet of paper. Make me 20 copies of this, please. In the blink of an eye, I detect the presence of three news interns lounging around the assignment desk, and remember, I'm doing sports. Uh, Steve, I just got my dinner and all, and since you do have three of your own interns back at the desk, could I, could I do it after I eat? He just stared blankly at me. It was as if I had told him I had shot his mother. He barely said six words to me the rest of the summer. Postscript, Steve Anderson was fired at summer's end because he didn't get along well with most staffers. I'm working reception, seated at the front desk with a large-scale phone in front of me. Out of his office steps the director of news, Mark B.V.S. Monsky, the boss, Again, I'm eating. Two slices, two monstrous slices of Sicilian pizza from the world's greatest pizza parlor, Venice Pizza on 3rd Avenue, and that's a plug. Monsky just stares at me. He is 5 feet 8 if he's lucky, and yet he looks like the jolly green giant. My good God, he bellows. The newsroom goes silent. Look at this. If I had this much food, I'd have to swim an extra 40 minutes every night. God love you. I'm sorting mail, barely noticing the various names as I stuff letters, cards, and flyers in the mailboxes at the door of the newsroom. Suddenly, a slew of whatever happened to postcards, a promotional attempt to draw viewer interest in the latest Channel 5 news feature. I look at them. Whatever happened to Charlie Chan movies? The next one. Hey, whatever became of the Charlie Chan movies? The next one after that. Whatever happened to the guy who played Charlie Chan, Werner Oland? And the last one. Charlie Chan! Again, I'm working reception. When you work reception, you rarely notice anyone entering the newsroom from the door at the left of your desk. This time you notice. Uh, could you tell me where Roger Higgle is? Not an extraordinary question, not from a normal person. From a six-foot-two-inch man in a pink-and-white rabbit suit, though, it is an extraordinary question. His female colleague, shorter but nonetheless similarly dressed, wiggled her whiskers at me. I let my head fall straight forward and hit the desk in front of me. Once more, I'm at the reception desk. Line 335 buzzes. That's reporter Gabe Pressman's private phone. It must be important. Mr. Pressman's office, in perfect secretarial tone. How much is it? The woman at the other end of the line asks. Pause. How much is what, ma'am? The record. The candidly Elvis record you were just advertising. How much is it? Uh, ma'am, you have the news department. Okay, how much is it? No, you, you don't understand. We don't sell candidly Elvis records here. This is a news operation. Oh, you don't sell candidly Elvis albums? No, ma'am. Pause. Then what do you sell? She had me there. The news director's assistant, Sherry Adele, and I are talking about the nutty phone calls we get. See previous example. I once got a call from Jimmy the Greek Snyder, she noted. Really? I said. Didn't know what to call him. Do you say Mr. the Greek? I'm back at reception. All the good things happen at reception. 
A woman calls repeatedly for Stuart Klein, the reviewer and humorist. He is never in during her calls, always there in between them. Finally, she goes beyond a simple message. Listen, can I ask you a personal question about Stu? Well, I don't see why not. I don't know him all that well, but I'll try my best. Okay, about Stu, she asked cautiously. I may be going out with him tonight. Yeah? Well, have you ever... Uh... Again, she paused hesitantly. Have you ever seen a wedding ring on his finger? I'm at the news desk. It's 10 to 10, minutes before the show goes on the air. The phone rings. News. This is Jorgensen, announces the voice of God, or at least the voice of the show's anchor, Bill Jorgensen. Tell the production people there's a stuck elevator. They'd better walk up to the studio, or they'll never make it in time. Yes, sir. Goodbye. Click. I race to the production desk. Bill Jorgensen just called. He says there's a stuck elevator and... The associate director looked up at me hopefully. Is Jorgensen on it? Uh, no, I say. He... Damn! I have more about the Channel 5 newsroom from my internship paper from 1978, including the man who is still on television in New York, who they all called Ted Baxter, and did not know it until he read what I had written about it. Next. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with a king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet that's right up to $1,500 again sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in Ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park that's 1-800-GAMBLER This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you run for office or take on the country's biggest problems, but they can help you solve one of the peskiest problems at home, pests. You know, the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, even the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians may not know intricate political strategy, but they know their local pest pressures. And with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and 
and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. It's 10 p.m. Do you know where your children are? The 10 o'clock news opening from Channel 5 in New York in the summer of 1978 when I was an intern there, splitting my time between the sports department and sportscaster Bill Mazur and the news department and the incoming news anchor John Rowland, who was slowly replacing the outgoing news anchor Bill Jorgensen. John Rowland, as I mentioned, died Sunday at the age of 81, and he was always very nice to me. There was a lengthy internship paper. I thought it was only 26 or 27 pages. I see the ones in front of me reading up to like 32. Let me finish with a few more anecdotes that were included in the paper. I think they're worth your time. Marvin Scott, Stanley Pinsley's Ted Baxter, is just back from an assignment in New Jersey honoring the infamous Famous Amos, proprietor of the cookie fortune-making industry. His chocolate chip models are unbelievable, and despite his fame, he has kept his business offices in laughable Passaic. They give him a day. He gives correspondent Scott a crate of just-baked cookies. Hi, guys, Scott yells to producer Gary Kay and associate producer Frank Chaffee. Look what I got. Kay and Chaffee materialize at the door of the room where Scott stands. The cookies... 23 of 24 packages are immediately gone. One remains. It is on Marvin's desk. Gary Kay, actual name Gary Krakow, a huge bearded man without a smidgen of tact, is on a hunt for more cookies. He and Chaffee finally spot the last bag. They race Marvin Scott to his own desk. Krakow grabs the bag of cookies puts it in one fist, raises it high above his head, squeezes it, and all the cookies disgorge themselves into Gary Krakow's mouth. No fair, you guys, says Marvin Scott. The newsroom's reliance on the Casey's Kitchen's delivery service was incredible. There would have been no semblance of nutrition had it not been for their intrepid staff of incompetence marching up the stairs five to 15 times a day. This day I call out for lunch. I bellow the customary, anyone for Casey's? Casey's, anybody? And I am instructed to order two regular coffees and a Diet Coke. I dial the number. Casey's, can I have a vanilla shake, two cheeseburgers, fries, Diet Coke, two regular coffees? This is the newsroom at Channel 5. Uh, sorry, the guy just quit. What? The delivery boy just quit. We sent him up there an hour ago with a turkey sandwich for Danny Meenan. We haven't seen him since. It was his first day on the job. I guess he couldn't take Channel 5. I said, naturally, it can do that to you. This is from a subchapter of the paper called Fun with Norman, Cliff, Bill, and Lee. They were the participants in a program called Sports Page 
This is 1978, and they decided to put on a half-an-hour sportscast at 11 o'clock every night. This anticipated by one year ESPN's Sports Center. It did not go well in the ratings, but there were a lot of factors that made that almost a certainty that it would not do well. And the irony of all ironies is that Bill Mazur's co-anchor on this show, on which I interned, was named Lee Leonard. And he was the first Sports Center host, the man who signed ESPN on to television a year later in 1979. Fun with Norman, Cliff, Bill, and Lee. My responsibilities on Sports Page were, to say the least, varied. I monitored the United Press International Sports Wire and culled its contents, a task that enabled me to do an excellent imitation of a thermal teletype printer. From 4 p.m. on, it was my responsibility to watch the wire for stories that might be used on the show, label each of the three copies of each story, sort each into its proper sport, and make sure the two anchorman writers, Mazur and Lee Leonard, got the stories they needed. I worked not only with Gelb, but with the other associate producer, Marlene Phillips, and the producer-director, Norman Ross. Cliff assigned me the task of researching and writing the bumper teases, graphic superimpositions that were aired for about 30 seconds just before each of the three commercial breaks during the show. Some were previews of upcoming features, others, as Norman favored, previews of the availability of city golf courses the next day or of the upcoming ball games in the area. Marlene gave me the thrilling task of typing the rundowns for each show, the list of items and approximate times, plus which sportscaster was to read which story. For Norman, I tried a little initiative. The first show, I felt, missed several important national stories that Norman simply wasn't aware of. He generally made up the rundowns off the top of his head. For the last four days, I voluntarily prepared and presented him with my list of suggested UPI stories that he could choose from. By Friday, when I was delayed in giving him the list on time, Norman was demanding its delivery and inquiring as to its whereabouts. From Bill and Lee, the anchors, I was assigned the responsibility of keeping them up to date on the scores. This very often meant racing up the two flights of stairs to the studios with a scribbled score or two. This proved much more successful than the hit-and-miss system of Channel 5's inefficient intercom system. Things were going smoothly until Wednesday. I came in at four, as usual, went to the office, and encountered a short, curly-haired individual with the first combination Long Island and Virginia accent I'd ever heard. This was Michael Berg, the sports intern. In our first conversation, I discovered he had no intention of a career in sportscasting, as I did, and really was not that hot on his internship. I fumed. I was there temporarily, only till Michael Berg showed up, and he didn't even want the job. I went to see Hanita Hirsch, who was in charge of all internships at Channel 5, hoping perseverance and fortuitous timing would match up with fate. It did not. Finally, Cliff Gelb came up with a compromise, beautiful in its simplicity. Mike, who had a smattering of experience in news, would alternate with me between news and sports. During the off periods, the unlucky intern would work news. I was so delighted, I volunteered to take the first two-week shift on news starting on Monday. The plan met with both Christine Tomlinson's and Hanita Hirsch's approval, and Mike and I became friends. Sports Page became a success from an intern's viewpoint with plenty to do and a lot of coordination between the staff and the recruits. Unfortunately, the program was not a success from a television viewpoint. 
competing with a heavyweight title fight, four local baseball broadcasts, and the NBA championship game, the experimental series was a ratings failure, and the show was not accepted as a regular feature. So it was back to news for a while. News and sports. The typical news day began either at 9 a.m. or 3 p.m. The early shift was probably more rewarding. Not only did I get to see the news build up from next to nothing to the scope required to fill an hour show and fill it well, but I got none of that sense of coming in halfway through a mystery movie that always ensued when working the evening shift. There were drawbacks, of course, as in rush hour traffic. I can remember one dynamite day of delays on the Penn Central line that turned my crowded but acceptable 40-minute train ride in into an hour and a half of standing in the aisle. But all in all, the morning shift was particularly enjoyable. The newsroom was dead upon my arrival, cool and quiet, yet with a sense of anticipation in the air. When I would get there, only the assignment editor, first Mike Lynn, later Joe Mancini, the desk assistant, Danny Meenan, the managing editor, a brilliant man named Roger Higgle, whose inside and incredible news reaction made him a wonder even just to watch, and one reporter with crew, usually Steve Bauman, cigarette in one hand, coffee cup in the other, were already in for the day. The early shift was bisected by a one- to two-hour ritual called the mail. Daily, the newsroom received one or two cartons, perhaps 500 pieces, of useful and useless press releases, newspapers, and letters for individuals and staffers. Sorting the mail usually took a half an hour. Opening the press releases, the intern's task too, varied in time consumption. It is still amazing to me that we interns were entrusted with the first gatekeeping position. We deemed which of the innumerable press releases and notices were even remotely possible for stories, and who filed them according to day in the newsroom's daybook file. Other tasks were the usual lab treks to drop off or pick up film, sundry errands, and of course the phone calls, those never-ending phone calls. As an aside here, let me read part of this again. Other tasks were the usual lab treks to drop off or pick up film. I should explain what film was. Television news until the early 1970s was shot exclusively on film. I don't remember which millimeter. It could have been 8. It could have been 88. I was never good at that. But it was all done on film. Videotape did not come in until 1972 or 1973. And in 1978, I believe Channel 5 was the last of the New York newsrooms to use any film at all. Often a reporter would come in hand the intern, me, a couple of rolls of film, and I had to race to the basement laboratory and sit there while it was rushed developed before they knew whether they had what they needed to put a story together or anything at all. They could develop a roll of film in less than 40 minutes, and you could sit there and get high off the fumes. I may be the youngest person still in the news business who actually ran film to and from the lab. Back to what I wrote in 1978 about Channel 5. Research was done, too, at the direction of the assignment editor or a particular reporter. Very often we would use the street and buildings index to call friends or neighbors of a newsmaker we were unable to reach. I remember trying to track down the number of a mysterious woman whose phone was unlisted, by calling each of 40 other tenants in the same apartment building. 
The woman had become noteworthy because her two sons regularly beat her and tied her to the bed to get money to buy record albums and rock concert tickets. If you wonder how we could have had the gall to interrupt people's lives and urge them to leave notes on other people's doors or rouse neighbors from their sleep, it was easy. Saying the caller was from Channel 5 News not only inspired genuine awe, but it also gave the caller tremendous confidence. The evening news shift began during the peak of activity, the hustle and bustle of 3 o'clock. Little phone calling was done at this point. Most story assignments had been made, and the issues were now execution and logistics. How, for instance, to get a camera crew that started its day at noon to a news event at 6.15 when union rules required they get a one-hour lunch within six hours of starting work. Sports was something else entirely. Tasks were few and far between once sports page was discontinued. The 3 o'clock starting time for the shift was woefully inaccurate. Bill Mazur himself rarely arrived before 4.30. He would pound out his evening's copy and then take a one- to two-hour lunch at about 5.30. The intern, me, was left to read the New York Post six or seven times, sit back in Mazur's wonderful reclining chair, and answer the occasional phone call. Most of the time was occupied by chatting with one of the film editors, Hank Greenberg, or Cliff Gelb, now promoted to associate producer of the news show. As airtime neared, things picked up. If there were a televised sporting event that night, it was down to the second floor videotape room to watch the first half hour to hour of the game and select a minute or so or good action for highlights. A home run or fine defensive play usually filled the bill nicely. Returning to the newsroom, I usually watched either the conclusion of that game or a movie with Bill, Stanley Pinsley, and whoever else had nothing to do, all the time updating Bill's scoreboard, checking with the people in graphics to make sure they got all the required information, keeping an eye on the UPI wire for late stories, trading opinions on the Yankees, or watching Amazed as Bill Mazur did a variety of high blood pressure exercises. My dual internship continued through early August, when I determined I should leave to give myself a week or two to get my FCC third-class license and just generally relax after a busy summer preparatory to returning to school. I decided to go out with a little class. I shelled out 25 bucks for a cake intended to read, To the Channel 5 Newsroom, Thanks for a Great Summer. The master decorators at the nearby bakery butchered the job. And only a last-second revision saved me from wishing a fond goodbye to the Chanel Number no. 5 New Room. Also, as I remember, I had to carry that damned cake. A big sheet cake, bigger than me. I had to carry it about four blocks. The punchline of all punchlines, as I mentioned before, Channel 5 in New York was on East 67th Street. In the year 2007, so that's what, nearly 30 years later, I bought an apartment on East 69th Street in New York City and out my bedroom window, as I looked over the glorious landscape of Manhattan, out my bedroom window, I overlooked the place I had been an intern 39 years before. All that travel, and I'd gone a block and a half. 
I've done all the damage I can do here. Here are the credits. Most of the music was arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel, who are the Countdown musical directors. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray, produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by the group No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Olderman theme from ESPN2, and it was written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN Inc. Musical comments by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was Richard Lewis. Everything else was pretty much my fault, including the bad math, because 2007 minus 1978 is not 39 years, it's 29 years. Thank God there was a job in broadcasting for me to go into. I may return to this internship paper if time permits in the days to come. In the interim, that's countdown for this the 854th day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Don't forget to keep arresting him while we still can. The next scheduled countdown is tomorrow. Until then, I'm Keith Olbermann, calling from the assignment desk of Channel 5 News in New York. Thank you for your time this time till next time. from many backgrounds, many lifestyles, and a wide variety. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details.